Welcome to the bookshelf. I'm Magdalena Clough. Tonight, we continue our reading of A Key to Treehouse Living by Elliot Reed. The novel is written in the form of a glossary-style list, which our protagonist, William, compiles as a way to understand the world around him. Now, here's Trevor Rao, reading A Key to Treehouse Living. Canoeists in the Reeds come a-rescuing. If you listen closely to the reeds and cattails around the banks of a pond on a breezy day in spring, you might just hear the beautiful sound of grass blades singing. The hum of many reed and cattail stalks singing in the breeze is like music. The hum rises and falls and stops on notes, just like a bugle. At first, you might think you're hearing a flautist in the reeds, and you may want to find her. If you hear someone whimpering somewhere off in the humming reeds, get ready for a rescue operation. Beginner canoeists, not having checked their boats for snakes, go out on windy days and get blown sideways into the reeds and the cattails that grow along the edge of the pond. If you hear a canoeist whimpering, it's because she's hung up in the reeds, where it's dark and where strange things like to live. In the reeds and cattails, you find green, spherical seed pods covered in tiny hairs that explode when you touch them, thick webs with fat black and yellow spiders at their centers, and complicated nests like tiny tree houses that are guarded by tiny birds. There are tangles of water snakes, beehives, and the Flynn Guide's least favorite, the Cockleburr. A beginner canoeist blown sideways into the reeds and cattails will flail and paddle in a panic and get more and more stuck. She won't know that the key to getting free of the reeds is to stay calm, wait for the wind to take a breath between blows, and pull backwards the same way she came in. If you hear a canoeist whimpering in the reeds, yell out that you're coming and head in the direction of the whimpering. Carefully stand up in your boat, slowly so you don't tip it, and scan the reeds. This is how you find the lost canoeist. You'll scare off all the bullfrogs you might have been trying to catch, but it's important to remember that you, too, were once blown helplessly into the reeds and would have died if it hadn't been for your uncle coming to the rescue. It's good to have a chance to repay your debt to the canoeing community. Once you find her, get the lost canoeist into your canoe. She may not want to paddle after what she's been through, Tie the lost canoeist's boat to yours and paddle out of the reeds. It's a good idea to ask the canoeist questions to calm her down and distract her from her recent ordeal. Questions like, do you often come to the pond? Do you know where to find arrowheads? Did you once have a plastic fort where you carved flowers on the inside? Creative Acquisition of Easy Snacks When you've got a lot of things on your to-do list and you hope to do them all in one day, you better hope you're prepared with some kind of an easy snack you can reach for in order to keep your blood sugar up. If your day involves working in the deep woods of a mid-city park in a stand of trees from whose canopies you can see skyscrapers, you might consider routing your approach to the park in such a way that you pass by a couple of street vendors selling hot food. You should especially be routing yourself past those street vendors on days that are windy. Street vendors are a distractible bunch of people as a whole, when the wind blows steadily, say on a warm spring day before a thunderstorm, street vendors are often so distracted by the dispersal of napkins and plastic utensils that you can just walk up and pluck a swollen hot dog right off the hot grill with your fingers, then disappear unnoticed. That's an easy snack. Other easy snacks include granola bars and small bags of nuts. At Ned's house, snacks were always easy. His mom made popcorn that had yellow cheese mixed in with the pop kernels, and she'd bring a bowl of it to us every time we were over there. She even bought us pizza once, then ate with us while we watched a movie in the living room. Campfire A fire built outside. 
This is very important. You build a campfire outside, never in. It may be cold in the treehouse, and you may build a fire in there to stay warm, but believe me, you will regret it. Here's how a campfire works. Heat comes from burning wood, cardboard boxes, leaves, or tires. Plastic is no good. Your warmth comes from the heat of whatever you're burning. Old wood is what's best to burn. Old wood comes from the pile that sits beneath your treehouse, where it stays mostly dry. Start with little sticks and work your way up. Use gasoline if you want, but take your hat off if you're going to start your fire with gas, and if you're a girl, tie your hair up in a ponytail. I once wrote an entire glossary just about campfires, but in the amount of time it took you to read the glossary, you could have built a campfire and learned about campfires that way. And when I realized that, I burned what I wrote about campfires in a campfire. If I had to do it over, I don't think I'd have burned what I wrote, since it's wrong to burn books, and since you never know when you might want to read about a campfire instead of actually building one. Coincidence. When you see a connection between two separate events, coincidence is a link made up by your mind. Any two things can be a coincidence, if they occur near one another in time, and if a person believes these two things have one specific thing in common, and everything else not in common. Some people, when they see a coincidence, point to God, as if something or someone planned for two unrelated things to happen for someone to see those two things happen, and for that person to draw a link between the two things and find meaning there. Cast. A word with several meanings. If you're near water, you might want to cast a pole, cast a net, or cast a line. And the purpose of casting all these things is to bring something back to you. A different kind of cast is the cast of a play. Then there's the cast of your memories, a cast which might also help you bring the forgotten stories back. The cast of this glossary so far, my uncle, Ned, the Midway Raptors, Carla, and Liz, El Andero, a dog breeder, some dogs, a clown, street vendors, a vaporized child, and a vaporized horse, a dead boy in a pipe, some normal children, and some normal horses, several snakes, strangers in the outfield, my parents living in a school bus, and a canoeist lost in the reeds. A cast is also what I wore on my arm for six weeks after a rotten board caused me to fall out of my treehouse. Cycle. Spring, summer, autumn, winter, spring, summer, autumn. Storm, heat, storm, cold, heat, storm, night, lightning. The first list is a cycle, the second list is more like chaos, because you can never really know what will come next. What's interesting is that chaos is embedded within cycles. Storms, for instance, happen regularly in spring. And this, grow hair, shed hair, grow hair, shed hair, this was the cycle of my uncle's cat. If you didn't know anything about cycles, you might be sitting in your chair, petting your cat, and looking out your window one day in October, and you would say, what a coincidence. That tree starts losing its leaves just as this cat starts to shed its hair. And you would waste time wondering, for a while, what this coincidence could mean for you. Cookout. One of the first signs of spring. A cookout is when people start fires in grills, and then the cookout attendees stand around the grill, smelling the meat, commenting on the smell, and drinking alcoholic beverages. Sometimes a cookout also involves organized games, such as long darts and croquet. Sometimes the attendees light fireworks after the sun has gone down, the meat has been cooked, and the children have begun playing flashlight tag. One time I was at a cookout at Ned's house. It was late, and we were playing flashlight tag with a couple of his neighbors. After a while, their parents came in and picked them up, and it was just me and Ned and Ned's parents sitting in the backyard. 
Ned's parents asked me how I'd come to know so much about nocturnal animals, and that's when I realized I'd been talking for a long time about the bat colony I'd seen in the woods while nobody else was saying anything. Ned just sat there smiling because he liked hearing about weird things, but also because I was the fastest runner in tag and I'd been on his team. Then my uncle showed up with a huge firework in a bag. He was late because he'd been looking for this special kind of rocket. Ned's parents said it was okay for Ned to light it, so he lit it, but first he went into the shed and got everybody a baseball helmet to wear during the explosion. The boom echoed and there were lots of little lights. Ned's mom screamed. A door slammed from the next house over and a fat man with no shirt came out and started yelling at us through the fence. Cooler snake. A snake found in an abandoned cooler. Crepuscular. The word crepuscular describes animals that are neither nocturnal nor usually found in the day. Crepuscular animals come out right at dawn and dusk when the sun is gone over the horizon, but somehow light still lingers like a ghost of the sun, or when the moon has long risen, race across the sky and set, when you can still see stars, but the sky is going from black to ultramarine. Crepuscular animals appear in this short-lived light and disappear when the light is more decisive. Chicken hawk. This is a raptor that favors the common barnyard chicken as prey. Somehow the fox escaped being called the chicken dog. No one can explain why. Language is a mystery. Also, chicken hawk can refer to an adult male who is attracted to young boys. This slang term originated in Little League bleachers as a reference term used by parents, referring to strange adult men spectating from beyond the outfield. Court order. Have you ever wondered why there are some things you can do and others you can't? Most good people have a natural idea of what's right and what's wrong, and so they can figure out how to live the type of life that doesn't hurt others. Most children, as a rule, have not figured out what's right and what's wrong quite as well as most adults, but some children have a pretty good idea of right and wrong from the beginning, and only have to learn the subtler rules, the ones made by adults in courts. Who decided, for example, that it's wrong for a child to build a treehouse in a public park? The court did. The thing is, there are a lot of things you can do that the court hasn't made a decision about, and so often you just can't know. You don't think you need to know either, because you have your own idea, but then the authorities come and see you doing something that they don't have a name for, but still they think that thing is wrong, and then they go to court and make a rule about it, or figure out a way to make it part of a rule that already exists. For this reason, there are courts all over the place, and each city has several of its own. Every court I've seen is inside of a stone building with stone columns in front. At dusk, little birds fly into the courthouse chimney. Stone steps lead up to the court entrance, which is usually guarded by two stone lions and a policeman. Once you get past the lions and the policeman and you're inside the stone building, walk until you find the two big wooden doors with the frosted glass windows in them. Behind these big wooden doors is the courtroom, the wooden room where the judge in the black robe hits the wooden block with his wooden mallet. People go to the courtroom to listen to the judge talk before he hits the wood with his mallet. When he says your name, you stand up and he says his thing and smacks his mallet, and you're supposed to react. If the judge orders you to clean up garbage for a week because for the second time in a month you were caught building a treehouse in a public park, it's better to thank the judge and leave than to explain to him that you were actually building a blind from which you could watch birds. 
It was my uncle's idea that we say it was a blind and he'd dress up in a suit and come down to the court with me to explain it to the judge, but also to say that if my mother were still on this earth, she'd have been the first to teach me some respect for private property. Either way, you'll be issued a court-ordered community service. The judge can order anyone to do anything he wants. He has an old woman named Patty who he sends to carry out court orders. You should hope that he does not unleash Patty or anyone like her to come get you. If you see her, don't even try to run. She is much more powerful than she looks. The best plan is to do as she says, act nice, and nod at the strange things she says to you. Patty is about five and a half feet tall and has short gray hair that looks like it's glued to her scalp. She wears between 10 and 20 jingling bracelets you can hear from 15 feet away, carries a black leather bag over her shoulder, and holds a thick stack of papers against her chest as she walks. Though she doesn't walk like anyone else, she waddles never changing her pace, never actually bending her knees properly, and she always smells like soap. The scariest thing about Patty is her fingernails. Her fingernails are more a residue than a body part. She chews them past the cuticle, or else some disease is eating them away, but whatever the reason, they're horrible and she likes to touch you with them. Her job, as she sees it, is to find you. She once found me in the dumpster behind the dollar store collecting cardboard for use as installation, and to find out how you're doing. If you run from her, she'll just find you again later, and when she does, she'll have brought along the policeman who guards the court. When she finds you, she'll make you get in her red car, which is always parked around the corner. She'll make you get in there, and she'll put on classical music and hum along to it while she fills out papers with a golden pen with a blunt end she chewed the gold off of. You'll spend an hour in the car answering questions about your uncle, questions about what you eat, questions about any bruises or cuts you have on your body, which she'll touch with those nails. You should answer as sincerely as possible while always making it sound like your life with your uncle is as good as you can imagine life could get. Patty will smile and act like she cares about you, and her whole act will be as fake as her teeth, but you have to act like you believe her or else you'll end up at an orphanage in Oklahoma. Don't be tricked into thinking that she knows about you, or that she will tell you anything useful about your absent parents. You are in the custody of your uncle is all she will say, as if you didn't understand that fact very clearly. She will touch you with those hands and look at you like you're the dog with wheels instead of back legs, and she'll say how confused you must be and how sad it is that your mother was who she was. But Patty won't ever say anything that makes any sense. Draft. This is another word with many meanings. One, my uncle's boat, which was a canoe, had a shallow draft. This meant that there was very little of the boat that spent the whole time beneath the surface of his pond. A shallow draft allows easy turning but offers almost no resistance to the pressure of the wind. The gentlest of breezes will push the boat sideways across the pond and into a thicket of snake-filled cattails. Two, in Little League, when the coaches pick teams by looking at a list of names and circling the ones they want on their team, they refer to what they're doing as drafting talent. 3. A special kind of draft known as an updraft is a gust of air blowing directly upwards, often at the forefront of big storms, and always in the middle of them. Picture a column of air. Updrafts make rain go up as opposed to down, and then the rain freezes and comes down as hail, like it did one day in spring when I was canoeing on my uncle's pond in the hopes of spotting the snapping turtle. Although the untrained eye sees all pieces of hail as identical, 
Close inspection reveals that there are four standard shapes of hail, each with dual sub-varieties. There exists a gypsy psychic who collects hail, studies the shape of each piece, and uses this information to talk in detail about specific events that have not yet happened. Dreams of the Beta Fish if you use the fish tasting method of nightmare reversion, you must prepare yourself to deal with the following inevitable side effect of using the beta fish. The beta fish dream. In beta fish dreams, you will be in an enormous tank of bottomless water with an enormous beta fish. You will be much smaller than the beta fish. The beta fish will be like a submarine compared to you and it will be terrifying. In your beta fish dreams, you will sometimes find the courage to coexist with the beta fish. You will find that you have no fear at all of the fish's flowing fins or its compassionless gaze. You will float there in awe of its beauty. Sometimes you will paddle your hands, and your strokes will take you shooting like an arrow through the water. Sometimes you will expand to the size of the beta fish. Other times you will watch the fish change into other things, or shrink to the size that it is, in reality, floating in its little tank across the room from your bed. Still other times you will find yourself asleep, staring at the beta fish in your bottomless bowl of water and you will fear it. When you at last awake and look over at the beta fish floating innocently in its bowl of water, you will be able to tell in its eyes that it knows you have just now dreamt of it. It's not just me who had the beta fish dream. My cousin Isabella used to have it too. Daddies. A daddy is a false authority. There are many different kinds of authorities someone may talk about, like the authority on grilling steaks is Bob, or I'm not the authority on huts made of mammoth bone, though I'd bet money they held up better than teepees. And if your uncle says simply, the authorities are on their way, he's referring to the police, who show up when high-powered fireworks are detonated within city limits, yeah. when a mansion is burned down, when strangely behaving people wander into the outfield at Little League games, or when an adult at a cookout notices that his or her child has disappeared while playing flashlight tag. A daddy, on the other hand, is a guy who thinks he's an authority figure but is not. Let's say you're in your treehouse playing dice with Ned when a man appears from the bushes at the base of the tree and says you're not allowed to be up there. Let's say you then ask him who he is and why he thinks you can't be up there. If he says he's a fireman but doesn't look like one, and if when you tell him you're not coming down he starts to come up the ladder, you've got a daddy on your hands. Derelict Child A derelict child also known as a wild child, is a child who has been living in the outdoors, away from civilization, and has learned how to exist as one of the animals. Wild children have long hair and skin caked with dirt. Some wild children have been raised by wolves, others by coyotes. Some wild children have been stolen by animals at birth. Wild children have their own idea of what's right and what's wrong. Several wild children, for example, have been captured in the act of freeing farm animals. Some wild children don't speak any human language. Others speak the language they spoke as babies. Some children become wild children after getting hopelessly lost and then staying lost whilst surviving off their animal instincts. Elon Darrow once told me that he spent a whole winter as a wild child. He disappeared from a hog roast when he was nine and came back when he was 11. Said he'd gone for a really long hike. My uncle saw a wild child once. He was sitting on the porch of his mansion, practicing the bugle, when he saw, by the edge of the pond, far off by the tree line, a naked boy burst from the forest, catch a goose with his hands, and return to the woods with it. He summoned the authorities, who searched the forest around the pond and found little footprints in the mud, but never found the child. 
down, comma, braking. Someone's driving his car someplace and the engine stops working, and he has to pull over and call a tow truck. That's a breakdown. During the draft, Ned got picked to be on a team called the Crushers because their coach had picked him randomly, and it turned out that the Crushers were a team for which a gang of five bullies played. Bullies who knew Ned and had beaten him up on numerous occasions. So when Ned heard that he'd been drafted to that team, he had a breakdown. Mostly the breakdown looked like him crying and yelling, though it also looked like him taking his dad's shovel out to the backyard and digging himself a grave beneath an apple tree. Digging in wood. Whittling. To whittle is to sculpt wood into things like spears and knives and shafts for arrows. Some people whittle just for fun, as Ned discovered while digging his grave, for he found beneath the tree a tiny wooden horse that someone had whittled and then buried. The finding of the wooden horse took his mind off his impending doom and led to a thorough archaeological excavation of the dirt around the apple tree, the disturbance of the roots, the falling of unripe apples, and the breakdown of Ned's mother. My uncle brought home two whittled chairs one summer. They showed up, stayed on the lawn for a month, and then he pawned them because the bets really weren't going his way. The two chairs were whittled from cherry by a nearby authority on wood. I remember there was a week or so where I forgot all about the treehouse and just sat in a wooden chair beside my uncle, who was sitting in another. I think he was lonely that summer because his daughter Isabella had sent a letter saying that she'd met an astronaut in France and might move with him to Florida. I remember feeling the cuts in the wood with my fingers and trying to picture what tool it was that had made them. Get a well-whittled chair, put it out on the lawn when it turns to summer, and you won't want to move from it. At least that's how it was for me and my uncle. E word, unknown. There's a word for how natural landscapes came to be shaped the way they are. There's a way for specialists to look out across a meadow and read the humps and divots that make up the surface of the earth. Then go on to describe a sequence of natural events that cause the earth to look the way it does. Why are there more trees over here than over there? Why so much of a slope on this side of the meadow and no slope at all on the other side? Turns out, there are people who can tell you. They're experts in ancient forces of nature. Prehistoric tornadoes, ancient rains, archaic gales. But I can't remember what they're called. I think their name starts with E. Exploration of Blackness People use the word black to describe many things that are not actually black. Blackberries and black people and blacktop are three good examples, but the best example is probably the night. The color black does not reflect light, so a black object actually has the sun's light kept in it. See brightness of sunlight. Photo paper burned with the light turns black. A tire is black for a while, but then it fades to gray. Black is lightning struck wood and burned buildings. The black of burned wood never fades, but starts to shine over time. Black is always the color of your pupil, and black is the color the sun becomes after you've looked straight at it for two seconds. The true nature of black will always be up for debate. Sit outside in lawn chairs at dusk or at dawn and watch the transition from day to night, the transition mistakenly referred to as light to dark. Watch the colors that appear during this time of transition. Think of how those colors feel through the sharp eyes of crepuscular animals, or through the big yellow eyes of nocturnal ones. Then hear how it sounds to say that something is as black as the night. Earlier hillbillies. The people who lived in the double-wide trailer a half a mile southwest of my uncle's mansion were hillbillies. This meant that they gathered near foul-smelling fires, drank in the daytime, had fights, 
and played music long into the night. Hillbillies have agreed not to think too much about questions like, is black actually black or is white actually white? Perhaps because they see things around them as complicated enough as is. Or maybe because they think there comes a time in your life when you know all you need to know. Or maybe the hillbillies just long for an earlier time, a time with fewer authorities, when things were simpler for hillbillies, when everyone burned their trash and children fell freely from dangerous treehouses built in old trees that are gone now and replaced by mansions. Enlarger, a five-foot-tall piece of equipment that prints photographs. The photographer uses his enlarger in a pitch-dark closet or in a closet with only a tiny red light because white light messes up his process. He takes his roll of film, which has tiny photographs called negatives burned into it, and slides it into the mouth of the projector, the slot beneath the enlarger's light bulb eye. Then he turns off all the lights, except the red one, takes a sheet of photographic paper from the dark plastic envelope that keeps the paper in darkness, puts the paper beneath the negative in the eye, and turns on the enlarger. The light shines through the negative and gives the special paper an invisible burn in the shape of a picture. Then he turns the enlarger off and puts the special paper in a chemical bath and swishes it around for a while until the photograph emerges from the special paper. It took me a while to figure out how the enlarging process worked, especially since I couldn't ask my uncle about it, and everything I know comes from a teenager named Brad who works at the Photoshop. When Brad asked why I was so curious, it all just came out. You really never know who you will tell things to and who you won't. My uncle had only ever told me my dad had disappeared and wouldn't be coming back. I was my uncle's responsibility and I would be until I was 18, which was five years away. I had to become my uncle's responsibility when my dad disappeared. That was all I ever got and I knew not to ask anymore. I knew that it had something to do with the fight between my uncle and my dad, the one I saw years ago in the kitchen, and I knew the fight had something to do with my mom. Sometime after I moved in with my uncle, I stopped thinking about my dad. I don't know when, and I don't know why, but I began to think of my father as dead. Except being dead, in the case of my mother, meant people thought about you more often than if you just disappeared. I know my uncle thought about my mother because he kept a picture of her on the mantle and I saw him look at it a few times. He didn't keep any pictures of my father on the mantle. After a while, it was as if my father had never existed, as if I was the son of my uncle. Then came the day that I found the photo enlarger in the basement, along with the old photographs, and I needed to make sense of what I saw in the pictures. You need to have been alive to be in a photograph, and so I told Brad that the enlarger was proof that my father had existed and might continue to exist. The discovery of the photographs made my father more than a blurry memory of a man by the banks of a pond. You have been listening to A Key to Treehouse Living, a novel by Elliot Reed, read by Trevor Rao. This episode of The Bookshelf was produced by Chris Massini and me, Magdalena Clough. Music by Dr. Turtle. Executive producer is Vern Windham. You can find this and other past episodes of The Bookshelf online at spokanepublicradio.org. <laughs>